Busy weekends are a breeze with American Express Platinum Card. 8 a.m., wait to board plane in the Centurion Lounge. <sighs> Much better. 2 p.m., grab seats for the game. Come on, pick and roll! 6 p.m., book an exclusive reservation with Resi Global Dining Access. Right this way. Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to the Centurion Lounge, must-see live events, and exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. When you're an American Express Platinum Card member, don't be surprised if you say things like, Chef, what course are we on? I've, I've lost count. Or, Shoot that, shoot that! And even, Checkout's not until 4, so... Because the American Express Platinum Card offers access to exclusive reservations at renowned restaurants, elevated experiences at live events, and 4 p.m. late checkout at fine hotels and resorts booked through Amex Travel. See how to elevate your experiences at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Don't live life without it. Terms apply. Welcome to this week's play-by-play of the Hangtime Podcast. Damaris Lewis, Sports Illustrated model, is joining us here on the Hangtime Podcast. You you have great personality. You can hear it in your voice. Would you date an NBA player? I'm open to anything, but respect. Old school. February. Like, I listen to Sinatra in the morning. You need to accept that. <laughs> so I hear you're single, then. <laughs> With your host. Seku Smith, Lang Whitaker, and Rick Fox. Our next guest should have been our first guest, Isaiah Thomas. How do you think you would play in today's NBA with the rules the way they are. Be honest. Uh, <laughs> we will win a lot. <laughs> and it's, it's our main man, Roderick Turner from the Los Angeles Times. Hey, too, can I say this first? <laughs> you know you when can. I, when I was covering the Lakers, when Rick Fox played, I had hair. They wore me out. <laughs> now it's time for the tip-off. Rick Fox wears us out right yeah. here on the Hangtime Podcast. Fellas, Lang Whitaker in New York. Rick Fox in L.A., Sekou Smith here at the Hangtime Hideout. What's happening, my fellas? What's going on? Uh, Uh, Draft lottery, playoffs, what else? Uh, What's not going on? I'm recovering from my field trip to the draft lottery last (laughs) night. I saw that on the All Ball blog on NBA.com. Nice. You did the pictures and the whole nine yards. I love it. I spent the whole evening down there last night. Saw the uh, saw this wild crew of Cavaliers front office people. <laughs> Did you have your bow crazy. tie on? That's what I want to know. Did you wear you a know, bow the, tie? The funny thing was, like, they all brought those lucky bow ties. They had the Cavs logo on it. Um, and the whole thing started because of Nick Gilbert mm-hmm. two, two years ago, I guess, the first time he came. And they got the number one pick that became Kyrie Irving. Right. Nick brought the bow tie. And um, so they've been doing it ever since. But they brought all these bow ties, but nobody knew how to tie a bow tie. <laughs> And so that Nick told me, and uh, and also they they had this rapper, Machine Gun Kelly, who's from Cleveland, with them. Nice. They were in. They were on the way from the airport into the city, and they were like on YouTube trying to find out how to tie a bow tie, and they couldn't figure it out. <laughs> and there was some guy there at the hotel last night who knew how to tie bow ties, so he was going around tying up everybody, getting <laughs> them ready for the draft. And look, it worked. Yeah, it worked. <laughs> uh, Cavaliers get the number one pick again. Now the problem is they actually might have to pick somebody. Well, in, a, three. in a draft that nobody wants the number one pick. Oh, man. You know, look, uh, <laughs> phone lines should be open. They should be exploring uh, options to get a veteran in there because yeah. that's what they need. They don't have any. I mean, look, Andrew Verjao went down halfway through the year, but outside of Andrew Verjao, who, 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 who are the veterans on that team that can stabilize the core of young players that they have? Because they don't just have a one pick. 
a number one pick. They got like two more picks too. Yeah, they got yeah. a lot of they got a lot of business to tend to in the. Uh, this is I, a lot of youth, you know. And you think of Sacramento Kings; they got a lot of youth. Look right. what they look like. So right. you know, it's not like the Cleveland Cavaliers were burning burning up the league this year with their youth. Their yeah. youth has a long way to go. Yeah, I mean, and, and and you look at the opposite end of that spectrum. Look at the teams in the respective conference finals, and do. Does anybody have a rookie that's playing a significant role on any of those teams? I thought I was think, I was thinking about that. I was watching the Grizzlies and, and the Spurs. I was like, are there rookies that play on it? That, like, do they even have rookies that that suit up? You know, you got to have a team full of that's that's led by seasoned veterans to play for championships in this league. I don't yeah. think we don't have a we don't have a Fab Five NBA rookies. That are getting on a team and, and taking a team deep into the playoffs, it just doesn't happen. Even it's the not. even the young guys like San Antonio has Nando DiColo, but he's twenty five or something. Right? Like yeah. That. yeah. And he, I, has he played? I hadn't seen him play in not in, the playoffs, in a minute. So, yeah. yeah. He has, you know, uh, man, look, there ain't too many Magic Johnsons line, you know rolling right. around the league anymore. And right. even when LeBron came in, you know LeBron his team, you know his teams were in the playoffs. But you know, he and he got to the finals after a few years, man. Your bones, these bo- these young kids' bones are brittle, man. You, you, this is a grown man <laughs> league that requires a a ton of 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 development, man. Physical development. You you know, you I get that they play AAU basketball. I get that they you know nowadays they're logging a ton of basketball year round. But still, man, when you when you when you land on a court in the NBA, you're not the only you know, stud that's that's right. running around. You got another nine guys on the court that that are prepared to, you know, test you. Right. Uh, including your own teammates in practice when they're trying to keep their jobs day in and day out. So exactly. you know that's why that's why you get a majority of the teams that go forth into the this this time of the playoff season, most of the guys on the floor are are they've been around for a while. Yeah, or like or like Indiana Pacers coach Frank Vogel said, you're just the next man you know, on the list of guys. We got to go through to win a championship. <laughs> how do you, you like that? How do you like Frank Vogel cranking up the uh, animosity meter by just making a simple statement after a game <laughs> where he wasn't he wasn't picking a fight with LeBron, but by the time uh, our brothers got done with it in the media, it was a full-blown controversy. We, we Game one on tap in the Eastern Conference Finals, Indiana Pacers visiting the Miami Heat. What do you think we're going to get out of this series that we maybe haven't seen from these two teams up in, up to this point? I like Frank Vogel because when they do the interviews between quarters, he's the nicest coach <laughs> uh, that, that's out there. I don't know if that's good for your team, but he he actually looks at the camera. He's he's friendly he, to the reporters. Like, he actually he, listens to what you ask he, him and answers yeah, it. <laughs> he makes a little bit of an effort. So I like Frank Vogel just just for that. Alone. <laughs> uh, I don't think I don't think this is going to be much of a series. Really? Am I alone there? What? I, no. I you you think, think so. it, you think Indiana's going to blow them out? <laughs> <laughs> well, I forgot Rick Rick picked Indiana to beat Miami, didn't he? I sure did. He, he did. Yeah. He's still alive. Yeah. And look, and look, because <laughs> the series hasn't started yet. <laughs> <laughs> look, the rest might the rest might have done Dwayne some good, so he may not you know he may not be um, as. Uh, hindered by his knee as as he was in that last series, mm-hmm. I, I, I look. I've been on the Indiana bandwagon for a number of reasons. Um, defensively, being the first, you know, the presence in the paint, being the second, uh, David West and and Roy Hibbert. It's not to say that you know Roy's an all star, 
uh, uh, but he's been playing better. He's uh, not. David, David West, you know, we know who David West is. So, yeah. so I don't, I just don't see that, you know, the interior presence on on, on the Heat side of the court. Mm-hmm. I know they have guys that can can match up and defend and give energy, but that's mostly in in an up tempo transition style of play. So. I, you know, look, I Paul George did an incredible job uh, in the, uh, I thought the Knicks series with Carmelo frustrating him at times. Right. He, he didn't lose his offense altogether. But George Hill, look, George Hill to me is the wild card, man. That young guy, man, didn't have the greatest game in Miami when, you know, during that streak. Uh, I thought he was a little aggressive from the perimeter and didn't knock down some shots earlier and it got him behind the, the eight ball. But I, I know that Indiana is not going to go quietly. And I think... They have an opportunity to to make some noise because they're going to play physically. They're going to defend, and and they're not struggling to score the basketball like they did before. Now, now, look, I'm not turning a blind eye to Miami, the Miami Heat's ability to defend, and they can they can snuff you out like they did to Chicago, uh, and and let their let their defense do the talking. I just think that Indiana is 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 going to have a better showing, I, I think, than they did last year, and they gave the Heat trouble last year. Yeah. What do you mean they're gonna? They're not struggling to score the ball like they did. Well, you know, offense in the first half of the season for them was you know was hit and miss. Yeah, uh, it was hit, George was still finding his way into being the being a, an all star player. Uh, you know, they they focused a lot on their defense and played that well, but they could go. You know, Hibbert wasn't giving them what he's been giving them in the post uh, this year. David West went down for a little bit injury wise, so you know they they just you couldn't look at the Pacers and go oh. They're going to score 100 points. That wasn't the case. But, you know, now what you have with the Pacers, and they're doing it you know, under the bright lights and the pressure of the playoffs, they're finding offense. You know, George George Hill and Hibbert are giving them offense. You know, they usually go to George and, and West to get that. But if you get the four of those guys finding a rhythm together, which they've been doing, you know, that's, that's, that's enough offense to, uh, to go with the defense they play. Let me, get, let me throw some numbers at you. Okay. 102. 79, 82, 93, 75, 106. That's, that's the points they scored in the different games against the Knicks. Oh, I thought those were Powerball numbers. <laughs> seven, seven, how many games? Oh, you mean from, from regular season as well as the playoffs? No, 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 against the Knicks, just this last round, the six uh-huh. games against the Knicks. Right. They, broke, they broke 100 twice. Uh, they broke 90 once. They were in the 80s once, and they were in the 70s twice. And I don't think that's enough to get by Miami. Uh, I don't think the numbers – That's this is my thing about the playoffs. The numbers from one series to the next, people always try and compare. It's like, I don't know that anything they did against the Knicks translates to what they're going to face in Miami because they're two totally different teams. I, you know, Miami plays a completely different style than what the Knicks play. You know, Miami's best player – facilitates for everybody else on his team in addition to getting his scoring, you know, and getting his, whereas the Knicks' best player facilitates for himself. And, and I and I stand corrected, Rick, on an argument we had here on the podcast a few, uh, few weeks ago about Carmelo. Like, I, I was under the impression that Carmelo was going to shift and play a different style in order for this Knicks team to thrive in the postseason, and he didn't do that. He stuck to the... I'm, I got a score to get us going mode, and I think that hurt that hurt the Knicks. To me, at some point, and I, th- and I think Kevin Durant did it to a certain extent, he tried to do it 
and it, it just wasn't enough against the Memphis Grizzlies. But at some point, if you're the best player on a team in a playoff series, the other team is going to do something to keep you from getting to your sweet spots on the floor. They're going to try and touch you down and make somebody else beat you. Don't you think Kevin, Kevin the Durant? The Knicks never had to worry about it. Kevin Durant yeah. did it more out of necessity than, than out of choice. Yeah, but I think, you know, it's, I think we saw him defer and do some different things like that in last year's playoff run because he realized, hey, I'm, I'm not going to be able to win this thing by myself. I'm going to yeah. have to but last year spread he had the wealth. A, but he, he had, had two a, healthy yeah. guys to help, you he know, to tote that low. Right, right. But <laughs> whether you do it out of necessity or not, I think you have to do it. I, I, and I don't. I didn't think Carmelo did that uh, in the in the Pacers Knicks series. Just wanted to throw that uh, out there. I, I yeah. I I hate to jump on on the, the Carmelo and the Knicks when they're down because I got into <laughs> it. I got into it with Spike Lee yesterday on Twitter, and he said he thought he thought Shumpert was the answer. Yeah, no. And I so, said, what I was said, the, come what on. Was the question? I, I said, <laughs> you know, the, the you know the answer next year is basically Shumpert. It's going to step up and it's going to be the answer. And I no. said, I said, you really believe Shumpert's the answer to all the Knicks problems? He said, he said, no, just one of the answers. And I said, okay, well, how many questions y'all got? <laughs> he, said, <laughs> he said, well, we got a ton of questions. <laughs> and so it's not, it's not a to disparage uh, Amon Shumpert. I think he, I like him. You know, I like what he he does. But I think uh, it always starts with your star. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day. The stars, you know, your 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 cornerstone is going to set the tone. He's gonna he's gonna actually make his teammates around him better. They're gonna actually he's gonna actually understand how to adjust his game from time to time. And and I just don't see that flexibility from Carmelo consistently enough. I I think he has he has one way he he plays his game and sees that's what he has to deliver for the Knicks. And he's leaving it up to everyone else to figure out how they fit around him. Right, and so somebody- that's. That's always going to be a challenge for him is that until he realizes that, you know, he has to adjust on many different facets from game to game as his teammates are going, because they're the ones that are not the superstars. They're the yeah. ones that are more apt to give you two out of four, five games of good play or three out of five games of good play, which requires you to. J.R. Smith. Yeah, it requires you to then lead them and, and direct them and change your game and actually make their jobs easier. Uh, but it seems like Carmelo at this point still really knows how to get his game off and and take care of his responsibilities, but really doesn't hasn't isn't uplifting those around him to the level that makes everyone else better when they're not at their best. And, yeah. But you could also argue that some of these Knicks players in the postseason, I mean, it, it, uplifting them was like having an anchor around your neck. I mean, <laughs> you know, Jared Smith struggled mightily. And uh, yeah, after, ever since the elbow, Jason Kidd. He still hasn't made a was, shot, has he? Yeah, yeah no, and he I love it. was huge for them yeah. in the regular season. Tyson yeah. Chandler, another yeah. guy who was big in the regular season. They had a lot of guys who were who just didn't really show up in the playoffs. Yeah, look, man, I, I hear you. I, I can make I can get on the other side of, and, and make a case for Carmelo too. Uh but I'm not trying let me I'm not trying to make a case for him. I'm just no, saying no. I think there are some explanations or answers. Maybe not all the answers, but there are some answers to that we could look at there. Yes, and and that would be that would be, you know, as a team sport, they're responsible as a group, not right. You know, right. Yeah, never, but I'm, never fall on one person. But Carmelo, let's not kid ourselves. Carmelo's the catalyst, 
and when it's and when it's time to take responsibility, because I, I wrote something about this about Kevin Durant last week. Everybody's saying, "Well, he's getting a pass." If LeBron had failed the way he did, he would get roasted. Blah blah. And I'm like, did, does everybody forget that everything that was said about LeBron in the wake of his failures, at you know, at in the playoffs in Cleveland or his first year in Miami? Like, are we forgetting? Oh yeah, no, he got his the open roast. <laughs> he got his. of of one LeBron Ramon James. I mean, it, it was crazy. Yeah. So let's not kid ourselves here. Into thinking, I, you know, I said Durant doesn't get a pass. He gets time. He gets. He's afforded the same thing all young stars are of his generation. It does. You don't win them overnight. No. You don't win championships overnight. Magic, and Magic, and Bird won championships basically overnight in their NBA careers. Yeah, which the first couple of years, as as the main dudes. Off. Yeah, they spoiled us all. Yeah, and they, and they had everybody thinking, well, it's, you know, dude's supposed to just go out and win a championship. And it, it doesn't work like that. <laughs> you you know what? And like those, guys, those guys didn't do it alone. Magic no. had cream. Yeah, not by uh, any stretch. Um, Bird had uh, you know, a lot of help. DJ so, McHale, you know what I mean? Yeah. It, so, you know, Carmelo doesn't have another superstar opposite no, him. No, he we does thought not. It was, we thought it was Amari Stoudemire. J.R. Smith, when he played like one, you saw the results that the Knicks got. Right. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, I don't know if Carmelo has ever been comfortable with another superstar. Yeah. You know, and so that's that's the dynamic there. You know, he, he, he can't do this all alone by himself. He needs someone else. And at nine, ten years in the league, he's going to be praying for someone else to come and shoulder the summer, some of this responsibility because yeah. it's just – it's hard, man. He, he can score 40, drop 40, but – a lot of guys can drop 40 in a loss. Right. You know what I mean? It's it's just it's not about you know scoring solely. It's about a group of guys, you know, playing together and finding a way to win and when the Knicks were at their best, that's what they were doing. Yeah. And I I'm sorry, you know, Tyson Chandler has a ring. He's played with a, a prolific scorer in Dirk Nowitzki. He knows what it looks like. And so when he starts talking about that in the middle of the playoffs, you know, what's he speaking to? Yeah. You know, what's he speaking to? He's on the inside. <laughs> so Well, Jim Beheim says he ought to hush it up. Well, Carmelo's, no, Carmelo's college coach came out and defended Carmelo. I thought that was yeah. interesting. It's just Look, like, I, like I said, each of us could defend Carmelo. Yeah. But at the end of the day, it's not so much about, you know, defending him as about looking at, you know, what's real in, in that situation. Right. And what's real is that, you know, he's going to shoulder the, the – the, the the majority of the praise because he's the superstar and right, he's going right. to get a lot of the criticism yeah. and and unfortunately for him it's a lot of years in a row now where he's ended with a lot of the criticism yeah speak and, speaking and, of criticism speaking of the c word how about how about Vinny del negro wait 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 before we get to that coach i want to ask you Seku, <laughs> what's up about another coach and it, it does all this Fall uh, on Carmelo's shoulders, or should it land somewhere else in New York? No, I know where you're going with this, and and Woody is an easy target, um, as is whoever coaches the Knicks at that time. We all know, but Woody didn't make Jason Kidd not make a shot, and Woody didn't make Jr. not make a shot. Now I will say this: but he kept, he kept, him but on he the didn't floor. exactly. <laughs> there are a lot of people, my dad included, who called me and was like, "Man, is he going to play Copeland or not?" You know, what I mean. <laughs> And then so, he put in Copeland, and Copeland immediately went Copeland crazy. lit it up, yeah. So, I mean, it – but all of that stuff, to me, is rolled into the into the ball of mess that, that the Knicks found themselves dealing with in the postseason because when you play a certain way, 
all year long, and it's not sound. It's not a sound, you know, like not a proven way to win in the playoffs. It comes back to chew you up. And you hear you hear Charles and talk about it all the time about a jump shot team a jump sh- a jump shoot shot shooting team is not going to win a championship. Team that team that lives and dies by jump shots not going to win. He says that all the time, and I know people think it's cliche and that he's just it's just Charles being Charles. Prove him wrong. I mean, well, a team that Miami, Miami Heat going to get a chance to try and prove him wrong. No, they're not because yeah. Rick they play, even though they don't have an inside presence. That no, Heat team is not predicated on right. just shooting You're jumpers right. randomly. You're right. That I mean, thing, you know, it's much more methodical is, than that. LeBron, LeBron plays a four. And, yeah. it, well, and he plays that point forward, and he, and he attacks, and he D Wade attacks. So I mean, the 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 Knicks, when you come down and let Jr. go one on one in freelance or Amon Shumpert or whoever, at that given time, it does. You're right, Lang. It does throw some of the focus back on the coach, like. I'll say you, gotta, you have to make your team play a certain way to be successful in the postseason. As a longtime fan of the Atlanta Hawks, I can't say that I was shocked to see Mike Woodson <laughs> not be quick to make adjustments in the playoffs. Ouch. Ooh, ouch. Said Hawks fans worldwide as they stand up and go, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and laying to your point before we move on of the, the Pacers and their scoring deficiencies. Right. Atlanta in the Atlanta series they scored 107, 113, 106, 81. And that's now that's a different defensive team than the Heat. But when they did lose, and I would agree, you know, when they struggle and they score 69 points, you know, and 79 points, 75 points, whenever they are not scoring the basketball, it, 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 they do lose. And a lot of that has to do with you know Paul George's offense. Right. You know, being inconsistent, and he's going to be faced with a LeBron James defensively or Dwayne Wade defensively. He's going to have to expend energy on both ends of the floor, and they win this. They'll win the series if he can play both ends of the floor on a le- on an All Star level. Yeah, he's got a ball out. He has to. He can't. He can't score eleven, twelve points. No, he has he's got to give a ball out. Twenty six. He's got a ball out. And if he and, doesn't score twenty some, he's got to get a triple double almost every night. Yeah, like he's got to be their version right. of LeBron. And Lance Stevens, quite frankly, had a had a really big game in that game six. Lance Stevens has got to got to kind of have that carry over into these first two games and play to a level and and at least match Dwayne Wade's energy and 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 if he can get sixteen seventeen points without having plays run for him, that's a bonus, man. Yeah, I don't know if Stevens is going to be able to do that against Miami. You know, so yep, yeah, you know, and I I just think Miami. I, I, what's that? Who's stopping him? Who's guarding him? I think LeBron helps on him. He's going to be LeBron... yeah, he's going to match up with LeBron and D Wade for long stretches. I'm going to match it. Okay. Yeah, so I don't Both know. Them, I, so. I just think I also just think Miami. I don't think we've seen them play 100 percent during the during the postseason. Really, yeah. Okay. They kind of play down to whoever they're playing against, and they kind of coast a little bit. And I think I think they're waiting to flip that switch, and that's kind of scary to think they're eight and nine, but. Um, in the, I mean, eight out of nine in the postseason, but I think that they're a team that still has something left to show us. Yeah. Um. Anyway, uh, real quick on Vinny Del Negro before we move on. Uh, any surprise? I mean, that's it's not exactly the most surprising news of the year that uh, Vinny Del Negro is no longer the coach right. of the Los Angeles Clippers. He was not fired technically, by the way. They Vinny simply Del- chose not to give him a new contract. Um, same as Mike Woodson in Atlanta a few years ago. Same as Larry Drew right now, potentially yeah, right. in Atlanta. Yeah, um, what, is, what is what is the thinking around that? Why why not? 
Is it just they really need to take time to deliberate? And... I don't know. I, I think a lot of it stems from the fact that Vinny Del Negro is one of these coaches where no matter what he does, it seems like it's not going to be good enough. The, right. All the Clippers did was what, have the best best season in franchise history, win a division for the first time, had a couple all-stars. Oh, and then they, you know, ran into that Grizzlies juggernaut in the first <laughs> round and, uh, you know, and lost in the playoffs. But we've been talking about Vinny Del Negro getting fired since training camp. Right. I mean, most of a, a lot of people are surprised he made it all the way through the season. Mm-hmm. So uh, the the question for me is not Vinny Del Negro anymore. It's where do the Clippers go from here? Like, what's next? Phil Jackson has already said he was asked, I believe, on SportsCenter if he would be interested in coaching the Clippers. He said no. He said he doesn't want to coach anymore a thousand times in nine different languages. So I'm I'm ruling him out for now. But where do the Clippers go in terms of a new head coach with Chris Paul, you know, and, and free agency looming about six weeks from now? I've seen some interesting names. Kevin Arnovitz wrote a really good thing on True Hoop on ESPN.com, I guess, yesterday. Kevin used to run the Clipper Clipper blog. He's a Clipper expert, as mm-hmm. it were. A couple of names he threw out. Byron Scott has a good relationship with Chris Paul. Could use a job right now. Took a team to the finals. <laughs> took a team to the finals in New Jersey. Right. Um, uh, another name he mentioned that I thought was kind of interesting and, and is a veteran guy. Um, it's not going to break the bank to hire him. Um, he's a good X and O's guy. It's Alvin Gentry. Yeah. Yeah. Um, he's been a Clippers I, coach before. I remember when he was the yep. coach when they had Lamar Odom and Darius Miles and Quentin Richardson and all those guys back when they I were as exciting. If, if they would hire somebody like like Robert Pack, who's an assistant there, mm-hmm. or, or or is this the kind of situation where you have to go get someone who's been there, done that, who has a proven track record of success, or do you take a chance? Or, you know, if you take a chance, to, is Chris Paul going to come back? Yeah. You know, that's <laughs> when, the question. When you took a chance with Vinny D. I mean, I think Vinny Del Negro had a, had a short body of work with Chicago. Right. But – you were taking a chance when you hired him if you were the Clippers. You weren't going out and getting a big-name coach with that proven track record well, of success. Well, at, at, at the time, they didn't have Blake Griffin. They didn't have Chris Paul. Right, but I'm saying you, you – to me, every time you go out searching for a new coach, and, and it should be noted Stan Van Gundy has taken himself yeah. out of the coaching mix, you know, in terms of candidates that are out there right now. I mean, every time you hire a coach, Lang, Rick – you are making a statement to me as a franchise, like we're trying to win at this level by hiring this kind of coach, or we're in exploratory mode and we're gambling on this top flight assistant coach or what have you. Sometimes it works out great. Tom Thibodeau in Chicago. Sometimes it doesn't. I won't mention any names, but you, you know, if you don't go out and get the Phil Jackson, Larry Brown's, uh, you know, what have you's, then you have to come up with the next best thing. And what what does a guy like Nate McMillan fit into that mix? Where does NBA TV's very own Sam Mitchell, who hasn't, you know, dipped back into the coaching ranks um, since his last time? I mean, where do those guys fit in and do they fit in? Right. That's, you know, because you you say a lot to your fan base as a franchise by the coach you hire. That's just the way it is um, every time one of these openings comes up. So. Yeah. But anyway, listen, we, t- we, we mentioned it earlier about uh, the draft lottery and the Cleveland Cavaliers uh, winning that number one overall pick. Let's get into some, some uh, prognostication and some, some draft talk and lottery talk. 
guys, this this is the time of the year to be our next guest here on the Hang Time Podcast. He's got uh, unlimited cell phone minutes, and he knows when to shut it off because come draft time, Ryan Blake, the Senior Director of NBA Scouting Operations, is the busiest man in basketball. Ryan, how you doing, man? I'm doing good. I, I definitely want unlimited minutes. <laughs> you, uh, you know, we're, we're at that time of year where NBA fans automatically become experts on college and international basketball. And, uh, I, you know, I, I sit back and watch the lottery, and I wonder to myself, these, these owners and these good luck charms and, and all these people in there with rabbit's feet and, and their fingers crossed, do they have any idea – what they're getting in those top, you know, 12 to 13, 14 picks, the way the experts think they do, or is it, is it a guessing game every year? Well, it's a little bit of a guessing game. And, and, you know, Cleveland will definitely, all the executives up there will be wearing bow ties right now. <laughs> you know, listen, we do have a good group of guys that I know in the top 14 um, that all the teams have got a lock on. Mm-hmm. However, we still don't know who's going to go one, two, or three. I really, I really believe that. I think with Cleveland having Noel and needing something that to really help the form just to complete that team, Noel's not going to be ready for some time. If they do feel through that medical testing, their own doctors and the testing that Noel did at the combine last week, and they feel that he's going to be that guy and they can take that chance then yes. But I think that Cleveland, well, at least I know that they'll be listening to a lot of other teams and their propositions and looking for maybe to trade down a little bit because Otto Porter is a perfect fit for them. Mm-hmm. Ryan, does a guy like Noel, is he a, do you think he's the kind of player who can come in right away and, and be a dominant, you know, once he's healthy, obviously, be a dominant interior player or is he more of a, a complimentary type guy on, on you know a, a more of a, a guy who can play off of uh, or he's going to need a Kyrie Irving or someone like that with him oh yeah he's well he definitely because he played basically half a season before he injured that knee and that injury is the same one that he had in high school he's not going to be able to play in summer league uh, we're not sure if he's going to be ready for preseason camp so that means it's He's going to have to have not just two or th- two months to get ready. He's going to have to have four months to get ready. He's not offensively polished. He's a, he was before the injury a great explosive player, uh, blocked over four and a half a game. Uh, he's a defensive presence, but he still. I mean, he's weighed in at two oh six at our combine, and I'm twenty five pounds more than that, and I'm six two. Of course, that's all muscle guys. Okay, right, right. But um, you know, shaped like a V. But, my, you know, you, I, say, I don't know anybody that is going to be uh, able to push around some of these bigs at 206 pounds. And you earn your minutes. You earn your minutes here. Any, everybody that's picked in the draft are not going to be the first, second, third, or fourth option. They have to earn their minutes to get that game toughness by playing defense. Well, Ryan, we saw another Kentucky – uh, player get thrown into the the mix, and when I look at uh, this past year, when I look at drafting players or scouting players out of uh, high school or college, uh, one year players or even four year players, you know the first place I go to is is you know their do they equate physically, 
And I'm not a huge fan of, of you know, tall, lightweight, big men. <laughs> not, not in a league where, where, you know, physicality or the ability to sustain physicality is required. And so when you talk about Noel, uh, maybe as a, a really exciting prospect, uh, we already dealing with the injuries he's dealing with. Uh, we look at Anthony Davis, who came into the league with the same type of body uh, frame and struggled physically to begin with. Now, it's not to say he won't have a, a, a growth uh, and maturity and, and physicality as he goes along here, but take Noel out of the mix. And if I'm skittish about drafting 206-pound seven-footers, what, who else translates physically first and foremost into the league uh, professionally? Well, I think you, you do have a number of these players in this draft. Uh, I mean, just starting at the top, you have Ben McLemore. Although he's a freshman, he's 20 years old. He redshirted last year. He's 6'5", can really shoot it deep. He's, he's an unbelievable athlete. He's a guy that can turn into a Dwayne Wade or a Ray Allen type, and that's hard to pass. And then you have someone like Otto Porter, and Otto at six. Eight, who who can score, can pass, can rebound, and he makes a lot of steals, and he knocks it down from deep. He's mentally ready, physically ready, and you know how it is. There's the, the transition from any level to the next level, but especially going into the NBA, is maturity and confidence, but confidence being the big thing. I mean, you have a number of guys right now that are a little bit older, like with Cody Zeller, who's seven feet and 230 pounds, uh, who, who can actually spread the defense. Uh, he's, he's a guy that at seven feet with great athleticism, he, he really showed in the testing last week that opened some eyes to a lot of peeps. And, you know, in our testing last week, we had an impressive 10 players record a maximum vertical, uh, vertical jump of 40 inches or higher. And, you know, that's that's unbelievable. That will open up some eyes for, you know, some of the other uh, some of the other teams that are thinking, you know what, I thought this guy was slow, you know, or he's smaller than I thought, and he's a lot longer. You know, we have this Rudy Gorbet who I don't know if he'll stay in the draft, but at 7'1", had a 7'9 wingspan, but he is a little soft. And you also have J- Jeff Withy from Kansas who is not that strong, and he's not that athletic. And you've got to still add in, guys, all those other bigs that are out there that are pretty dang good. And if you get those guys that may turn out to be a 8, eight and 10 guy for eight years, you get them at a cheap price. Ryan, you mentioned uh, Rudy Gobert, and, and I've seen uh, this Dennis Schroeder, and there are lots of different international players popping up in these mock drafts right now. It seemed like the shift was away from international players for a few years, but now all of a sudden you see a bunch of them back in that first-round mix. Has there been some sea change at all in scouting or in analytics that has led to another, maybe an, another one of these eras where we see the uh, international players crowd into the first round of the draft? Well, I mean, obviously, uh, analytics and uh, these advanced video analytics like Vantage, this new company that gives you all the uh, analytics right there and then, plus the video, helps out with all prospects. And that will help narrow down in the piece of the pie who you want in and who you may select. But in terms of internationally, 
they're always going to be lo- – we always look overseas to find different players because, you know, my, listen, my father was the first guy to, to draft international guys with Dino Medellin and Manuel Raga. Right. When, I was, when I started coming into this league, I was overseas playing professional tennis and scouting, and I said, man, these guys are great. we got to get more information out there. Mm-hmm. So that now with technology, we're able to see these guys uh, easier and uh, have more access on how to go see them, and that's part of what my job is. But but you have to do diligence with all these guys. A lot of these guys are not ready. And if you have a guy that is not guaranteed uh, a high pick, you're going to have teams maybe like San Antonio uh, and other teams that have a full roster, not a place. And I talked about this years and years, and teams started doing this. They would pick one of these players on the hopes that they would become that great player, let the international teams develop them, and then when they're ready, bring them over. Because a team, an NBA team does not have to offer the $550,000 buyout. Mm-hmm. They can just say, no, he's already under contract, so you take him, you, you deliver him, we'll scout you through the next couple of years. But if you're, if you're waiting, if your team up there at the top and you got a guy that's under contract, like Rubio, who had a $6 million invoice coming in, mm-hmm. you know, what are you going to do? You may get burned, and you don't want to do that if you're a GM and your job's on the line. Ryan, another guy who I, a little closer to home uh, is that I'm curious about is Contavious Caldwell. You know, as a, as a Georgia fan, I watched him the past couple <laughs> – I watched him, and it seems like people kind of slept on him a little bit, and now just the last month and a half maybe since – season ended I, I keep seeing him slowly creeping up the the mock drafts um what can you tell us about him well yeah here's a guy that averaged almost 19 points seven rebounds a game and two assists on a team that was not very good and i remember watching his last game and i was in nashville his sec game he's playing lsu not a very good team either and here he was playing on the perimeter, still trying to get his teammates involved, uh, you know, and just not have a good – playing within the system, you know what I mean? And and just not getting it, that offensive done. Then he finally, in the second half, he said, okay, forget that. I've got to take over. And he finished up with 32 points and 13 rebounds in the loss. <laughs> you know, he had seven double-doubles this year, and that's pretty solid as a guard. And he shoots at 37% behind the arc. And this is when you have a bullseye on your back. Now, here's a guy that I think when he's surrounded by better players, he will be able to not only make his teammates better, but he's going to be able to have more opportunities because he is athletically gifted. He's a very smart player, and he plays defense. Two steals per game. And that's how he's going to earn minutes. Hey, Ryan, uh, no, I'm going to ask this question for Sekou. Uh, <laughs> Appreciate I, that. I, I, don't, I, I know, know where this is going. going. He doesn't want to appear biased. Uh, <laughs> Trey Burke, what's the, what's the likelihood that Trey just storms up the, the ranks of this draft and ends up a, a number two or a number one? Someone goes after that Cleveland pick to get him. It, it can happen. You know, this is one of those drafts. Um, I, I don't know if it will. I think, you know, with Trey, uh, the knock against him is, you know, he's not that athletically gifted, which I kind of throw out. I was like, the, guy, the guy's an athlete. 
Okay, he's you know he, you look at Steve Nash. If we knew what Steve Nash was going to turn into, you know <laughs> he would be up there. But what Trey Burke has, just as well as all the qualities that he has, uh, he's got a huge heart. You know, you, I always tell my scouts, I don't care how bad the game is, don't leave with two minutes to go. And it's definitely if it's close, you watch who wants the ball, who. Uh, how people react and work at the end of the game, whether it's a blowout or close. See who chokes, who has confidence. This kid wants it. He's confident in himself, but he's not overconfident. Mm. All right? And here's a guy that, you know, I mean, just he, he averages something like 19 points a game. You know, he can rebound. He's a, he's a passer. He can play in an up-tempo style. He can play in a combo guard format. Uh, there's a lot of different ways, but – He's a competitor, and the one thing that we've always said is you never can really look into a guy's heart, but you can get a general idea, and and with, and with Trey, you definitely have that. I, I love the uh, the Trey Burke analysis. Uh, <laughs> I do. I'm, I'm, I'm biased, and everybody knows it. I don't care. Uh, I Ryan Blake. Gonna, I thought you were going to end after I love the Trey Burke. <laughs> <laughs> no. Ryan Blake, the Senior Director of NBA Scouting Operations, is joining us here on the Hang Time Podcast. Ryan, I, I was literally throwing stuff in my office last week during the combine, <laughs> listening to the analysis. You know, every guy they talked about, well, this guy should have a, a top ten grade, but – you know, this guy should be a top five pick, but if there's that many butts with some of these guys, then they shouldn't have a top five grade. They shouldn't be a top, a top ten pick. I don't. To me, your body of work in college, on the court, has to count for something. And so many times, it seems to me like throughout the process, the the pre-draft process, people are trying to convince themselves one way or the other that a guy isn't. What they thought he was, or is, you know, I, I get frustrated with this idea that, you know, the more we learn about a guy in the month, two months leading up to the draft, the better, as opposed to watching his body of work, like you mentioned on tape with the analytics and the video, that that somehow that should be outweighed by the how fancy he looks in workouts. Well, sure. I mean, you you look think of you know the the circle pie, and you put in. Uh, a big percentage of actual live games and the games that you watch and all your scouting reports. Uh, again, you're going to have coaches and some other GMs that will come in and see these kids, and they're, and they're just working out. They, again, it's not five-on-five five basketball. And, you know, the, the, this game, although as physical as, as it is, it's 75% mental. So knowing how a guy can play and compete is that important. But what they'll what we do or what teams will do is they'll have their scouts go over all their prospects every single game and go re rewatch them, you know, like through Vantage, you know, the the the, the software company that I told you about mm-hmm. earlier. They will go through that and then they'll get the analytics. Those that's another little piece of the pie. So they can narrow those things down. But the big piece comes from the actual play. I mean you can look in the league and you look at some of the guys that we will have in the second round as well that will be playing in the NBA next year and maybe in a possible free agents. We got to think Wes Matthews. You got to think Jimmy Butler. You got to think Carl Landry. I mean, we got guys that, I mean, I can tell you right now, there's a guy that I just, uh, you know, I have my intern come up to me and go, hey, you know that guy, Mike Muscala? Uh, he's nowhere in the, you know, the draft, you know first round or something like that because i don't really look at these i come up with you know what we all come up with our own mm-hmm. and 
And for me, a Mike Muscala from Bucknell, who's 6'11", that can really play and on both ends of the floor. He's got touch, and he's athletic at 6'11", 230. It's not even mentioned in the first round, and I shake my head. I mean, we got a lot of bigs in here, and we're talking about different different players, but, you know, I didn't hear anybody talk about him at the Combine, except right. for my, you know, core group of guys that, w- that were there watching ourselves. Mm. Hey, Ryan, let's go. Uh, go ahead, Rick. I was going to say, can, can, we, can we look back a year to last year's draft, uh, just shortly how quick maybe there were surprises or disappointments from, from – you know, a year later after we've seen these kids. Absolutely. Now, we have, if we look back last year, and, and, and let me preface that by saying you don't know how a player is uh, if you had success with him until after three years. When you, have a, uh, when you have a player that can make an impact their first year or towards the end of their first year, you have some, you have success in your draft pick. Obviously, after that, if you have a franchise player, that's what a lot of people are doing with their home run hitting. Uh, you, you, know, you take Kevin Garnett and even Kobe. That 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 took a while, even back in the day. But you look back and and you go, okay, is this guy going to work? If uh, you know um, Anthony Davis, for example, I think you know when you take someone like that who. You really, we call this thing a guesstimation that we came up with. We take that that pie, and we put it together, and we come up with that guesstimation. And that guesstimation can be, you know, a 96 percent that this guy is going to have success. You know, LeBron was high, Yao Ming was high, even though people didn't. Uh, I think the media didn't think much of him, but we saw him so much internationally. We just knew he was going to have that success. Um, but you have to look at it over a three-year period. Ryan, you, you mentioned, you know, we could really get into some deep weeds if we start going back in, you know, in hindsight and reviewing drafts. But I, I remember I remember there was a strong movement, you know, a lot of different writers and, and different media outlets were advocating drafting Darko Milicic, Milicic over LeBron um, in that lead up to the draft. And I, some of it I felt like was for LeBron fatigue. When a guy gets so much attention for so long, Leading up to it, you kind of start finding holes and looking at things to nitpick about his game. We don't have necessarily a guy like that right now, but have we had someone in your estimation over the years who suffered from something like that and maybe paid for it? I think of Paul Pierce all the time, um, you know, as a guy who slid down draft boards for reasons that, to me, had didn't have a whole lot to do with basketball. Is there anybody that sticks out in your mind over the years that, that has suffered that fate? God, that's a That's a... That's one I'd have to look back and, and really think about. You know, with with Paul Pierce, you know, I remember my father and I were cross scouting that, and I saw a couple of Paul's, you know, two of his bad games. But my dad really uh, watched a lot of his games and went to the Big Twelve and also. And, he, and my dad said, "Okay, this guy's the third best player in the draft at <laughs> least." And I was like, "Okay, I got to go with the man," you know. Right. And he slipped. It was like. Dad, he's eight. He's nine. I'm going. I don't want to be right. But what Boston said was, is like, that's crazy. We never had him in for a workout. You know, what if that? You know, what if Boston promised? You know, some kid, hey, we're going to take you at ten. Oh, sorry, we got Paul Pierce. You know, that's what scares me about, you know, some of these uh, promises, so to speak. Because I'm telling you, you know, if if Noel went down to, 
you know, to four for some reason, you know. Bobcats are going, oh, yeah, Biombo, you're out of here. Or, you know, uh, what, you know, you don't know. Um, you, you do have that. Now, now you take about Milicic, if we had the same scenario, not knowing what he was going to turn out to be, <laughs> we would still take Milicic. Yeah. Because he was that good. Mm-hmm. He really was. You know, Carmelo, as good as he is, but, you know, I think everybody uh, looking back there, it was just, you know, going overseas, going to Serbia, watching him play, watching him compete, and and still to this day, he is that talented, but he doesn't, just doesn't have the confidence. He just couldn't do it, you know. Yeah. You never Like you talk about people's hearts, you just don't know how they're going to adapt. And when he went to Detroit, he was crushed. Yeah. Ryan Blake joining us here on the Hang Time podcast, the uh, son of the great late great, you know Marty Blake that everybody knows, and of, of course, uh, you know our condolences with you and the entire family uh, upon his passing. Uh, a pioneer and a legend in the NBA, Ryan Blake, the senior director of scouting of NBA scouting operations, joining us here on the Hang Time podcast. Ryan, one last thing: we talk about all these different guys uh, in the past, the future. Um, and Lang mentioned his name uh, earlier today, uh, Andrew Wiggins. You know, and, and we get this thing where everybody knows this guy or that guy in two or three years might be the number one pick, could be the number one pick. I think, you know, and, and I think back to Harrison Barnes and the kind of hype he had coming out of high school and he goes to college, he ends up not being the number one pick. What has to happen for Andrew Wiggins not to be at the top of people's boards this time a year from now? To not be a... Well, I think, you know, you, you bring up a good point. First off, is there's so much, which is so unique in a basketball, there's so much media hype with, you know, with the young kids coming up and who's going to go into the draft and so forth. We did a study, uh, well, it's probably been four or five years ago, but we did a study on all these guys that were supposed to be projected to go in the one-and-done guys. Mm-hmm. And when they came in, they were like, okay, they're not that good. They're going <laughs> to go three years. Oh, wait, they're still seniors. They still can develop, or they took two years. And, you know, I think when you – when you, it's like Amari Stoudemire. I'll just give you this yeah. example. Amari Stoudemire was a man amongst boys in high school. Yeah. He went to several, a uh, couple different schools. And when he, out, when he went out there, he was playing with teammates that some were Division One prospects against some players opponents that were division one and he floated and it wasn't until he came straight from high school remember but it wasn't until he got drafted what eighth or ninth by phoenix it wasn't until he got into camp and credit to him and credit to the sun staff where he became that animal to work hard and he wanted to prove to all the naysayers okay but he didn't prove it before so when you come into college, you're going to be playing with great, good players against good players. And you have to learn. You have to develop. You have to go to school. You have to do all those things and continue to progress in those ways and to prove that. And sometimes you're not good enough or you have to work on different things. You know, the things that the defenders, uh, bigger guys, quicker, just like you would when you go from um, – college to the nba they're bigger they're quicker they have more experience and they have to be ready that's why it's great for the nba to have 
this opportunity saves them time and money, and you get to evaluate better. I would like to see it after two years to have them more mature and better. Really? Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, we we listen. We'll we'll start a fight if we get into that conversation. You know, Rick Rick Fox is the captain of the Get Off My Lawn All Stars. He wants everybody to be a grown man. You know, when they come into the league like they were when he you know when he broke in. So it's again we don't we don't want to start another fight here on the Hangtime Podcast. Ryan Blake joining us. We appreciate it so much. Uh, we know you got plenty of work to do between now and draft night, and we're looking forward to all of it, man. Thanks so much. All right, thank you guys. Take care. All right, now. Thanks, Ryan. Rick, I think it's very interesting, though, that people within the scouting community and nobody has, you know, has the perspective really of of a guy like Ryan Blake, whose whose dad was the longtime NBA director of scouting services, Marty Blake, and and he, you know, working alongside him for years and now in the position that he's in. If if the people who run it are saying these kids need more time, you know, that maybe fresh out of high school or one year is not enough. Why wouldn't somebody somewhere sit down and say, you know what, for the for the greater good of the game and for these kids who are trying to become NBA players, let's let's sit down and figure out a better way to do this. Well, you're winding me up right now. <laughs> that's what I do. So that's what I do on that's that's my job. Look, it's, like, it's, it's, like that's hard. <laughs> it's a it's a rarity that you see the the Kobe Bryants and the Kevin Garnett's that right came out of high school directly into the pros, and it took them two, three years to really round into basketball professional shape. Uh, but what they never got was, you know, and it's not to say that their their support system around them, their parents, their families didn't provide that for them, but they lost the socialization uh, that we all get as young men and women, just, you know, being amongst our peers, being amongst our age group, uh, pursuing uh, life skills, whether it be in a college setting or in a work, you know, a work environment. Uh, you know, look, if it was up to me, and, and uh, you know, I would want all every young man that that has or woman that has a potential of creating a career for themselves as an athlete to also be, you know, building a career for themselves in life. And I don't know, maybe there just needs to be something in place within the, these leagues that is, you know, that creates a required experience uh, that mentors these young athletes where, you know, just like there's a drug policy, you know, if you're under a certain age in the league, there should be maybe mandatory, uh, you know, they do it on sets in, in movies. Right. You know, if you're at a certain age, you have to be tutored. You're getting right. tutored and you, you can only work a certain amount of hours and a certain amount of uh, requirements that have to be met. And I mean, that's taking it to an extreme, but we're losing a lot more young men and women who are chasing the dream of, of a professional career. Uh, and look, when you're focused on something like that, we know how much time and energy it takes to be great and to make it, uh, uh, you know, beyond the statistical numbers that say you're not going to make it. Uh, spl- splitting your focus in any way, you know, so could be argued as diminishing your chances. So, you know, these young athletes today, they know that. So they put all their energy in, in chasing that dream and a lot of the life skills and the academic skills that they'll need for the rest of their life don't get the attention. And, and so when we think of the stories, I guarantee you we can stack up on, on the left side 20 times, if not 30 times, the amount of kids who have, who have fallen by the wayside yeah. uh, that we thought were going to be the Kobe's and, and, the, and the Kevin Garnett's. And, and they're just in the LeBron James. Those guys are just, you know, generational freaks of nature and uh, were born to play the game. 
But, uh, you know, I look at the guys like the Tim Duncans that played four years, uh, that still went on to have incredible careers and is still playing in the NBA. Uh, you would say, well, he's, you know, he lost three years <laughs> of, of pay or professional career earlier on if he would have left college early. Who knows? We don't know that. And yeah. so we're, we're arguing both sides of the fence. Is it better or worse? I think we all can say that uh, you get a better rounded human being who who with, with chances of sustaining a you know a, a life beyond sports you know the chances are greater if with with at least a few more years of, of mentoring and coaching from from coaches and, and experiencing their peers in college uh socializing uh, uh and you know and and that's just my take on it um and i and i i'd love to hear you guys i think in in I, I kind of want to disagree with you, but I can't um, because I, I, you know, I, I think if you go to college and if you have that opportunity, um, you learn life skills, right? And but look, there's going to be people who go to college and it doesn't work for them too, right? You know that going to college doesn't necessarily definitely say mean, hey, if you make it play three or four years in college, you get to the NBA, you're going to be able to have a life after the NBA and have a career and be a better socialized person but at the same time why should we make a lebron james play four years of college or a kobe bryant play four years of college or you know and that's obviously a smaller group but there are obviously guys who are clearly ready to be professionals uh much earlier than some people and so at some point do we not say you know what we're going to punish these guys by making everyone go to college for a certain amount of years and do we just say this is on the GMs. Don't draft the wrong guys. Don't take the guys who aren't <laughs> going to be ready. Don't, you know, right, that's, but why, also, that's why they do all these interviews and all these tests and everything. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah, easier no, said I, than done though, to resist the temptation sure. of the, but maybe that's what makes what a might good GM. Be. And a, that's yeah. what separates good GMs and bad GMs. I agree. I, I agree. My argument isn't that these, that the kids aren't pros or potential pros or capable of being professional athletes right away. Right. My argument is, what are we doing to support them, you know, when they're not, uh, yeah. you know, if they're not or if they need a couple of years to reach that point? Because yeah. a lot of these kids that come in that have the hype and the expectation and the pressure to deliver right away or in their own minds or are, are, are faced and met with a league that they did not. They had no concept or idea that it was going to be that way. And they lose their confidence. They then turn and they're left, you know, standing there trying to figure it out on their own. And you got grown men who have jobs and families to take care of themselves, and they're, they're moving along. They're not stopping to raise a kid. And I just think if if we look at, and I compare the entertainment industry only because I see what you know what happens to young actors and stars, child stars that go on to have disastrous lives, and right. and and it's and it's sad because just a little bit of structure somewhere within our system of professional sports, the NBA, you can't tell me that your structure can't be, if we can implement drug testing and steroids and, you know, it's not like we're saying, Hey, look, you know, these two hours a week or three hours a week where a system is in place for you to mandatorily have to meet. If you come in this league at a certain age, you have to spend this time in a program that, you know, three times, you know, three times a week or once a week, I don't care what it is. Something that starts to build life skills uh, for these kids then I, I think we're, we're, we're not we're, – the league could be a better place. A better athlete on and off the court creates right. a better league. 
Why is why is that the NBA's responsibility though? I mean, just to for sake of this argument, a, this is why why is why is it a is it an owner's responsibility to make sure you know you you provide your players with better food choices in your tra- in your practice facility? I mean, if you leave it <laughs> yeah. up to them, then yeah, not everyone has been raised the same. Someone's going to grab a donut when someone else would grab a carrot. You know, we, you know, we, you know, and so it's like you're not. Hey, leave leave my food choices out of this. <laughs> hey, right? Don't call me out. <laughs> hey, look, I was donut grabber. So I'm, not, uh, I'm just saying that that it it if you care about the league, and yes, you can say, okay, well, it's not their responsibility. Well, it's also not our responsibility then to tell them not to do drugs. But yeah. yet we will we will definitely find them and kick them out of the league if they do. That's a great point. I just think we don't. I, I just think we don't need to absolve these guys 100% of responsibility for, for choosing and making good choices for themselves. Yeah. I, d- I do think that but there's a middle ground. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I no, think there's no, a middle I ground what, though. I what you're saying, but the, you know, I have plenty of friends who don't, ha- didn't have that foundation and figured it out. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. But kids want discipline and these are still kids. And, 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 and so you're asking them to be grownups and, and men and, and, and teach them themselves life skills. Look, I had to find, I had to figure out my life skills on my own throughout this league, throughout right. the league. I found, and, and I, I don't, I think I could have been a better pro if I didn't waste five years trying to figure it out. <laughs> so, you know, so if someone, you know, and I look to some of my mentors, the guys that came before me, but some of them were pirates, man. Yeah. Some of them were straight pirates. And, and so at the end of the day, if I'm emulating them, and I have no place to turn. Look, I, the rookie transition program was gold. I sat in there for three days, and I was like, oh, my goodness. This is yeah. what's ahead of me? Yeah. And thank God I listened for those three months, I mean, those three days. To, and in and, and the next three years of my life, I was scared to death you know, <laughs> of what was going to potentially come, come at me. Right. But at least I was aware. And all I'm saying is stretch that three days – into something that's mandatory throughout the course of the first year, at least. Yeah. That's that's deeper than just hey, here's these three days of of scared straight, right. and now you know now we hope your agents and managers and family members support you through these things that might show up. Do we Rick, Rick, do we not have you? a middle ground, though, guys? Uh, no, there's no middle ground. No, I'm saying in terms of an example in baseball. Um, and I know a lot of people look at Major League Baseball. It's a totally different sport, obviously. You're going to spend time in the minors no matter who you are, basically, um, before they call you up to the big league team. But if we say we had a three-year rule, and, and you could, but you could still get drafted out of high school and somebody would own your rights or something, isn't there a way we could do both, give the teams the flexibility they want in, in yeah, drafting and still keep the players in a system where they're not going to fall by the wayside? Because of the money and the pressure and the influences that might be upon them at a at a you know an impressionable age. Lang, you want to go first because I think I know the answer to that. <laughs> no, you, you can go ahead. Go ahead. Um, I think it should there should be. I think it'll never be because of NCAA basketball, which is way too much money. Right. Yeah, which is pretty much our minor league. Yeah. System and and you know AAU was already crawling up their spine. Right. And and influencing. Their game, yeah, the yeah. Game, their game already, which yeah. they, you know, if they could, if they could cut off the the neck of an AAU uh, <laughs> system, they would. Um, but look, you know, I, I believe you're right, uh, Seiku. I think you. I'm gonna start calling you Seiku. I think you got to. I think you know exactly what what needs to be in place, and it needs to go 
deeper down the, yeah. the ladder into these kids at the age of, you know, 14, 13, 15. Because if, if they if they if we can target them right then as potential pros and we start treating them and courting them like they are, then where's the support system that says, look, you know, why not? create that minor league system because a lot of these kids are going off to AAU anyway and they're playing 80 games a year before they, you know, pro, pro yeah. uh, schedules to begin with. And there's even their high school teams are becoming second fiddle second to, fiddle, to yeah. their, mm-hmm. their focus. I talked to my high school coach and in Indiana, they changed the system to allow the high school coaches to actually play games in the, in the summer with their kids Yeah, simply because they were losing the time spent with their kids. And these kids are going off and playing on teams, coming back on, you know, with their own agenda. Yeah. So it's there, it, it's there and it's happening. Uh, and we're, we're fooling ourselves if we think uh, that, you know, that something shouldn't be adjusted. Yeah. Well, we are fooling ourselves because, because the reason that that will never happen is because, and you know, this, those gentlemen are amateurs, right? <laughs> yeah. They play college basketball. They play for the love of the game because they want an education and they want to, uh, this is amateurism at its best. And that's the official definition we get and we give, but it, for all intents and purposes, these, I mean, the kids who play AAU basketball, they're traveling around more than pretty much anyone else their age has ever traveled. Um, they're being a member of a team that's basically almost like a pro team, um, they're sponsored. They travel around. They play other kids. Um, so, officially, they're amateurs, and and that this will, this can cannot happen, right? We can't set up. The, who who would set this up? The NBA, the NCAA, but the NCAA will say no. We're just here to service the colleges and the universities. It, it's it's a big mess, to be honest and to be frank. But I don't know that there is an answer for any of this. You could just be laying. Um, and and by the way, the Major League Baseball and college baseball, somebody on that side has decided that that's the best way to do it. The NFL and college football have decided, hey, this is the best way to do it for the safety and security of the kids who want to come to the league and for the security and you know longevity of players in the league. We'll, we'll make sure that there's a rule that doesn't allow you to enter the NFL draft pool until, what is it, three years after your high school class? Is right. graduate. I mean, th- to me, that that only makes sense for all sides. I'm serious. I don't. Get, I don't understand why something that would benefit everybody would be such a hard sell. Because listen, we talk about LeBron and all these guys who, oh, this guy was definitely ready. He didn't have to waste his time in college. Well, right. you could have said the same thing about Chris Webber and Glenn Robinson, and I could go back. Those are just guys at my of my time, but I could probably go back before that and find the handful of guys. Who would have made? You know, you say a guy would have made it no matter what. Well, I can find that handful of guys year after year, or every of every yeah. era. Magic Johnson, you know. I mean, think about some of the guys who, who could have come fresh out of high school before it was in vogue and done it. Mm-hmm. You know, um, and I, I just think that's a this idea that well, whose responsibility is it? That's kind of a short-sighted way of saying I don't want to have to be the one to drop this hammer. So I'll, you know. I'll lay the responsibility off on somebody else. And I think everybody is a is a culprit in that. I think the NBA, college basketball, and all the people who are fattening their pockets on this system the way it is now don't want to see it change. And I think it would be changed for the better. And but at some degree, I think do we all agree here that some some level of responsibility lies on the player? 
Some level of responsibility relies on the player in every sport, though. I mean, man, these are eighteen-year-olds. I understand that, and I'm not saying that every kid, um, you know, is equipped to make the best decisions or is equipped to even have the chance to learn how to make those decisions. But maybe not even when they're eighteen. Maybe further along. But at some point. Oh. Yeah. It always is, Olan. You could be twenty-two. Yeah. You go to four years of college and and, buy, and, and wash out. That's totally that agree. can happen to anybody. Right, yes. I'm about to get I'm about to get you off my lawn right now. <laughs> Look here, man. In the state of Massachusetts, <laughs> emancipation is twenty-three. Wow, here, twenty-three years old. So what are they saying? They're basically saying that my son, who just graduated from high school and is off to college, that he is not man enough to stand on his own two feet yet. Mm. Okay, so they're asking me, which I am willfully and excited to do, is to support my son until he's 23, right? And, and, and that's one state. That's Massachusetts, okay? Now, I don't know. Lang, at some point, your child's going to be 18. And, and I'm telling you, I don't know of an 18-year-old that's ready to go into the world on their own. Some are forced to. Right. But I don't know how many are prepared to go off into the world on their own and handle all the responsibilities of taking care of themselves, let alone, you know, having the, the responsibilities of, of the money that comes at these players and the, 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 the women and the attention and the, and the agents and everyone's pulling on you. They're not equipped to make those decisions. Right. And so, and so to say that, you know, it's going to, it should fall on them. Yes, at some point it it should fall on them, um, but I don't I don't think it's eighteen years old. I don't think it's nineteen years old. I think that's that's setting that's setting these kids up for failure, man. And 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 that's and look, we don't we some of them survive, but are they really surviving? Right. Yeah. You know. Or, or, well, yeah. I, I just think that, like I said, it's it's an age age old debate. And I thought talking to Ryan Blake, uh, you know, somebody who's integrally involved in in the draft scouting process. and I mean, you heard him. He's like, if people had it to do over, they'd still draft Darko, knowing what they know now. And I'm like, I can't, I cannot believe that's, and that's the part, Lang, where, where you're right. It, it's up to the organizations and these general managers to make good decisions. Any GM that would still draft Darko based on talent alone is a GM that should get fired. Look, Based on what you at, know now in hindsight, I mean, it's ridiculous. They would get fired eventually. <laughs> yeah. look, look at uh, last year's number two pick. Could have been a number one. There was talk. Mm-hmm. I mean, he even said himself, I should have stayed in school. Wish I would have stayed in school. Called the co- coach up and said, man, I wish I would have stayed in school. Yeah. And and now now you have a young kid who I don't, you know, I, I can tell his athletic ability is there, but I don't know if he'll ever gain his confidence. So, you know, it's it's okay, he'll make he'll make a rookie scale salary for the next three years, but but where is he at, you know, in his fourth and fifth year? Right. You know, right. is he out the league? Is he is he is he gonna still find find himself to be a mid mid range guy in this league, sixth, seventh player, maybe a maybe a start. We don't know. so it's but that's a high pick. That's yep. a high draft pick. Yeah. And and so In know, some ways it, in some ways it works against him being a number two pick and being that talented because if he was a lower or first round pick, do you think he has the same trouble assimilating and, and adjusting if he gets drafted by San Antonio? No, or, it, it's the, da- I mean? it's, it's my Marvin Williams, Danny Granger rule. Oh man. The year, the, the year the Hawks took Marvin oh. Williams, Danny Granger was projected to be a top five, top 10 pick. 
he ends up going 17, and he looks uh, – everybody's, you know, review of him as a as a pro becomes totally different because of where he was picked. You know, he, he's a, he's an all-star and, and all that stuff at 17. Looks totally different than if you'd have drafted Danny Granger at, at two or three. It's just mm-hmm. – I mean, the, the expectations – are cranked through the roof when a guy, the higher you're drafted in this league to me. Um, Rick, Rick, you mentioned that it took you, what, five years to to adjust or, or to kind of figure it out when you got to the NBA. Was it, I don't want to put words in your mouth. Is that, that what you said or – yeah, I, I I think I exaggerated for a fact. It took it took me it took me about three and a half years. How much of the of your struggle to adjust or learning to adjust? Do you think that would have been different if you'd been in a, on a different team, a different situation? I don't want well, you. To, I'm not asking you to throw anyone under the yeah, bus. Ask, he's not asking you to throw Rick Pitino or anybody else under the bus <laughs> on the hang time podcast. Yeah. No, I. Uh, I uh, <laughs> it's too late for that. Look, I came. I came in. The, probably the perfect situation for any rookie in the league. I played under Larry Bird, Kevin McHale, Robert Parrish in a Boston Celtics uh, organization where championships and excellence was demanded, not expected. They didn't expect me to do big and, and exciting things um, out of the gates. So I, I, even though I started my first game in the pros because Kevin Gamble was holding out and I played, I started the first five games and, you know, I still was not ready, and a lot of it was just the understanding of how to physically take care of myself mm-hmm. on and off the court to prepare for the next game. And I came from a Dean Smith, you know, schooled four years environment, yet I still was in a big city for the first time playing and, and, and gaining attention, and, and I still wanted to go to the bar after the game and have some <laughs> beers. You know, like I, 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 you know, it took me a year. I'll never forget, at the end of my first year, I, I was feeling my oats because I, I had made, like, I think all rookie second team or something like that. And, and I had thought that I should have been drafted in the lottery and was told I was going to go in the lottery, but slid all the way down to 24th. And I couldn't figure out what the heck was wrong. What could these people not see that had me slide all the way to 24th? And so I, I remember being in, uh, in, in practice and going up to John Kuster, a fellow Tar Heel, who was the assistant coach there at the time. And I said, like, you know, you guys got to steal, right? And I said this to him. <laughs> confidently i was like he was like yeah well i don't know about that rick and i said what do you mean mean?" he's like well you know the word out on you was you 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 like to hang out and and, and party and i was like yeah but it's college who who doesn't drink in college and he and he goes yeah but we weren't sure if it was more than that Mm -hmm. i was like what what you talking about drugs and he was like yeah well look you know we just we know people weren't sure and I, i i couldn't remember my mouth dropped open I, I could not believe that what i thought was just hanging out and having beers with friends and throwing some townhouse parties granted you know it was a lot of people would show up <laughs> but, but i fancied myself a pretty pretty savvy smart young man under dean smith's system who was just playing hard basketball in college and having fun with friends but because i threw these parties where hundreds of people would show up they didn't know what else was going on at that party. I had no clue that whatever was else was going on at that party was attached to me in terms right. of a, a stigma. Right. And I just remembered, holy cow, like I am in a different place. This is my job now. Yeah. And just the perception and the uncertainty of who I'm spending my time with, how I'm spending my time off the court, not just in practice and on the court, really is going to dictate 
the future of my career. And, and so it just took me, I, I went into shell shock in that moment. And the next two years of my career was about really learning how to be a professional outside of being protected and coddled and having my schedule set for me by Dean, Coach Smith in the, in the Carolina basketball system. I had to in turn create my own structure. Yeah. And that's when I started to look around in the locker room to see who, who I can emulate and guys like Robert Parrish and, and noticing how he took care of himself. And, and unfortunately, you know, he obviously <laughs> smoked some meat. <laughs> I don't know if I'm going to go that route. Not sure that's the right role model. <laughs> so I was about to, you know, smoke some weed. Uh, but then, you know, I had Larry Bird and I saw how he, how disciplined he was. But yet, you know, he liked to have a six-pack after the game. Right. I was like, yeah, but I don't know if that's for me. You know, I was just a different era, you know. And so... And then I looked at Kevin McHale, and I was like, wow, Kevin has to have fun at all times for this game to make sense to him. And so mm-hmm. I had three different personalities to pull from, uh, but all the while trying to figure it out. And it wasn't, you know, for me, it wasn't till about three and a half years in that I, I, I found my own rhythm and my own niche of how to survive. And, and we were talking about, you know, Noel being six, you know, seven feet, 206. Yeah. You know, if you don't equate physically into this league, and, and your body can't sustain the pounding and the, and the recovery required night in and night out to show up and be at your best, then you're gonna be you're gonna be behind eight ball and you're gonna be playing catch up all the way all, all the all the while. And for a lot of guys, when you first start to feel the pain and and the fatigue that comes with being a professional athlete, you gotta you gotta somehow trick yourself mentally to look past that, and you have yeah. to almost lie to your body to say, you know what, do I want this? Because this is what life is going to be like for the next 10, 12 years if I'm lucky. Yeah. That every day I'm going to feel like this. I got, a lot of guys can't mentally get past that. Yeah. I got two quick things for you, Rick. One, yeah. walking down Franklin Street after a big win and telling everybody, come on back to the townhouse. <laughs> it's not a good idea. I'm just, I've been there. I walked down the street. I know better. The, the, <laughs> the second part of that is you mentioned role models that you had when you came into the league. And I think about the fact that the international and high school influx into the league eroded that that mentoring system yes. to some point yes. where you such a great point. You know, when you have these young guys coming to the league, they don't have seasoned vets in their locker rooms to show them the ropes. And if they do have veterans in there, the veterans aren't the kind of guys that have grown up in that system. They're guys who came into the league when it was a one and done party and yeah. half your locker room is is younger than you. I'll never forget Fred Jones came into the Indiana locker room from Oregon. And he had been, you know, he went to college, he's a four-year player, late bloomer, you know, wouldn't have been a, a, a first-round draft pick normally, you know, if he'd have come out any earlier. And he was kind of, you know, he was taken aback by the fact that everybody in that locker room was older than him. Then I, when I was here in Atlanta, and they, Lang, you remember this, when they had like five rookies yeah. the first year I was here, and they, they took some vets that they had early in that season and moved them. And the, the oldest dude in the locker you know, at one point, the oldest dude in the locker room was like 28. I mean, it's a, you don't have that same system that you have to kind of forge your way through to earn your stripes when the vets in the locker room might be younger than some of the rookies. I remember when the Hawks drafted Josh Smith and Josh Childress and they put their lockers on either side of J.R. Ryder's Yeah. <laughs> I mean, you just you don't have you don't have that kind of system built in 
to help you mentor and vet young talent, it makes it extremely difficult for guys to learn those hard lessons and and to come up through the ranks the way they did when you played, Rick. And I think that's something that for the good, like I mentioned earlier, for the greater good of the game, the movers and shakers in basketball at every level need to have a a come-to-Jesus moment and sit down and figure out what the best way is to keep the game sound from top to bottom. Because I've watched, you know, I got got a fifth grader. I've watched nine- and ten-year-old kids in rec basketball and youth basketball travel. They're out of their minds. They're kids at that age whose parents, I'm not talking about the kid, whose parents have already got them ticketed for the NBA. So you're already fighting an uphill battle if you're basketball's structure, if you're the, the established basketball establishment, you already got a handful of mess coming because you got so many people who assume Johnny is the next big thing. You know what I'm saying? It's you got to figure out a way to stem that tide and fix it at, at some point where you can move this thing back in a direction where you're getting more polished in lane. You talk about making those choices. It's not just on the kid because some of these kids don't have the mentorship you had or I might have had or Rick might have had at home by the time they get to a level where they're a basketball player that people are looking at and trying to to, to affix themselves to to get ahead. I don't talk about this a lot, but, you know, my son is six months old and you've already already, got him. (laughs) I'm I'm already having a hard time getting him to focus on working on his left handed shot. Uh, dribbling without looking at the ball, all that stuff, you know, like he, he's, he doesn't want to do it. He doesn't want to put in the work and I'm, you know, I'm having to tell him, look, yeah. this is what it's going to take. So you can take care of me when I'm old. Exactly. Have one, a couple of those big contracts. That's all. That's what we're working on here. He's only dunked on a Nerf hoop one time in his crib. And that's clearly <laughs> not enough. If he's going to be the number one pick in the 2028 draft. That's all I'm saying. Yeah. Get no, I'm, I'm with you. Get focused. You know what I'm saying? I'm with you. I, I think you're on the right path. But no, it's just a very interesting conversation, guys. I wish I wish we'd have more time with Ryan Blake, and uh, maybe it's something we revisit again uh, come draft time. We got a little while till the draft. That's something else we might have to talk about again come draft time because something's got to change in order for it, the, you know, for it to be as sound as it needs to be. I tell you, if I'm Cleveland, I don't know if I want that number one pick. <laughs> the phone lines should be open. All right, guys, fantastic conversation, as always, right here on the Hang Time Podcast. We got to thank our guest this week, none other than Ryan Blake. You might know him as the NBA, the Senior Director of NBA Scouting Operations and the son of the late, great Marty Blake. We appreciate him coming on and joining us here on the Hang Time Podcast. Guys, the, the, the conference finals will be in full swing on both sides by the time we get back next week. I'm not going to mention the fact that my, uh, my Memphis Grizzlies and my playoff bragging rights pick has me biting my nails down to the, to the nothingness, you know, hoping that I can pull this thing out. Uh, Lang, are you even still alive in bragging rights? Sure. <laughs> I'm always alive. Where are you at? I'm saying you, you had the heat, right? Like, you picked the heat. the heat. We all picked the heat. I mean, that is no, no shock, no, no, except no, for Rick. No. Yeah, Rick's the only one who picked the Pacers. So we did not all pick the heat. But only one of us is, has both of our teams still alive, right? Correct. Okay. Meanwhile, the San Antonio Spurs told him, uh, telling the Memphis Grizzlies, "Get off our lawn." <laughs> I heard they were going to send you a T-shirt until they somebody reminded them. Oh yeah, Derek Fisher, and they're like, "No, we ain't sending Rick nothing." 
<laughs> we ain't Rick ain't down when I get off my lawn all stars in San Antonio, baby. I'll, I'll tell you this though. I just I got uh Tara August sent me the schedule for the finals, right? And mm-hmm. she was like, So we would like to have you in to either Memphis or San Antonio the week of the tenth through the seventeenth, and I was like ah! <laughs> <laughs> You get no love in San Antonio. I, I know. I, like, it'd be one thing if like I could go to San Antonio and spend the week and actually interact with basketball fans in a positive light, <laughs> and not get just, cursed out on the river walk. I'm, 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 I'm gonna just sit in my hotel room for a week, man. <laughs> Maybe Seiko and I'll show up there, and we'll uh, we'll take care of you. Yeah, we'll we'll walk okay. around as your bodyguards. Just bring me uh, some big sombrero. I need to get a big. Uh, <laughs> you need to get a good disguise. Yeah, you good can dis- hang out at uh, Brent Berry's house. Exactly. You need to get a good. Oh, yeah, give me a call, Bones. You need to get in a good, a good paparazzi disguise for uh, for your time in San Antonio if you were going there. But unfortunately, you can come hang on Beale Street, and I will take you to BB King's, and we will get it rocking. Where Where would we prefer to go, Memphis or San Antonio? Well, we. <laughs> we is not my concern. My pick is my concern. So I uh, need, I need okay. the Grizzlies to win four out of five and make this thing right. That's a whole lot of BB King's barbecue. <laughs> <laughs> Most of which I cannot digest anymore. We appreciate everybody hanging out with us again this week on the Hang Time Podcast. Fellas, let's do this again next week. Sounds good. Hey, guys. Get off my lawn. <laughs> Later. Thanks for listening to the Hangtime Podcast. To download more episodes of the show, visit the iTunes Music Store. And be sure to check out the Hangtime blog on NBA.com. And as always, say kuna matata.